Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to episode 36 of Faith and Family. 24 years ago, I became a Catholic. Just six months after that, I was asked to give four talks on the reasons why I became a Catholic. And at the very heart of those four talks was one in particular on the Catholic view of marriage. Surprisingly, at least to me, that talk inspired the founding of the Family Life Center International, as well as Faith and Family Radio, which you're listening to right now. This week and next on our broadcast, you'll be hearing my very first Catholic talk on marriage. I will then produce a third show following the parts one and two about my discoveries 24 years ago and how they are utterly relevant to the greatest threat against Catholic marriage in 500 years. And it's something even more threatening than the push for legal recognition of same-sex marriage. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go to part one of my very first Catholic talk on marriage. The title of my talk to you this morning is Our Marriage Covenant and Our Covenant with God. And although she couldn't be here with me on this talk, and although she wanted to be here with me this talk, I'd like to dedicate it to my wife, Karen, my faithful covenant partner. As I mentioned yesterday, this talk, along with all of my talks this weekend, somehow spring from and are related to my testimony. And my changing views on marriage had a very direct and distinct impact on my changing views of the church. Before I begin, I feel I need to make a statement to those here. Uh, Many of you who either are here or will be listening to the tapes from this talk have suffered great pain in the very deepest part of your being through a broken marriage or a broken home. And my intent in this talk is not to add to any further hurt that you have already suffered. Jesus did not come to break the bruised reed. But there is healing in the truth of God's word as it has been preserved in the Catholic Church. And my desire is to add healing to our marriages, to our families, giving strength to our home and to our church. I'd like to begin with a little exercise. We're going to cover the whole Bible. Okay? Now, I know you thought this was going to last an hour. Actually, this is only going to take about three minutes to cover the whole Bible. You ready? I was in a class in college studying the Bible, and our professor, before we began studying a book of the Bible, had us read a book entitled How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. That's a quite lengthy book, but some of the tips in that book said that you can, through a few techniques, learn what a book is about, learn some of its main themes, if not its main theme, and its purpose within five minutes. And many people will read through a whole book and perhaps not know what it was about after they're done, and where you can take five minutes and find out what the whole book is about before you start, so then when you go into its parts, you don't get lost. 
One of the ways to learn about the Bible and how to read a book, Mortimer Adler suggests, is just look at the title. A good author will tell you what the book is about by reading the title. Now, sometimes you get bad titles on good books and it really throws you off, but a good book has a good title to tell you what that book is about. So let's go to the Bible, the Holy Bible. I mean, it's literally the Holy Book, and that might not help you a whole lot, but all you then do is look at the table of contents. It'll tell you everything that's there. And you open your table of contents to the Bible, and what does it say? Old Testament, New Testament. You may not know this, but you could translate that uh, quite easily. Old Covenant, New Covenant. The Holy Book, the Holy Bible, is about covenants. The whole of our theology and the whole of Scripture can be summarized through God's working through these biblical covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So we've only taken a minute and we already know the thrust of what we're going to find before we even open the pages of the book. Then you probably do this when you'll look through some of these books later this morning or this afternoon. You turn to the first few pages and just get a flavor for what it's about. Well, you open the first couple of chapters of the Bible, and what do you find? You find the Creator making the entire universe and then creating a man and a woman to be in a special way placed in this creation in a special relationship to the Creator. It's chapter 1. And you move to chapter 2, and you find that God brings this man and this woman together and making the two one. And you have the first marriage, Adam and Eve, by God, in the second chapter of the Bible. I could not emphasize enough how close we should pay attention to the opening chapters of Genesis. These are not writings of some primitive ancient culture that does not know a whole lot about God or the world. These are so loaded with meaning. And the fact that we can open the Bible and find God coming into relationship with man and at the same time bringing a man and a woman together in the covenant of marriage. All right? That took a minute. Let's just flip through quite a few pages and go to Revelation 21 and 22, the last couple of pages. Read the conclusion. Find out how this whole book is going to be summarized. What do you find when you open Revelation 21 and 22, your last chapters of the Bible? Well, wouldn't you know it? It's the same thing you read about in the first two chapters of the Bible. Now, after all of redemptive history and all of God's purposes are fulfilled, despite the fall of man into sin and the coming of Christ to bring us back into a relationship with Him, you find the church described as the bride of Christ, fully adorned and prepared for the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and God and man united in this eternal covenant in glory for all eternity. This is not a coincidence that the Bible opens with covenant making and a marriage between a man and a woman and then closes with the same. If it opens with it and closes with it, if you're clever, you might figure out that a whole lot in between has to do with the same thing. Is it a coincidence that we read in the second chapter of John that the very 
first miracle our Lord performed at the beginning of his public ministry was in the context of a wedding feast? No. Because that's what the whole thing is about. That's what it was all looking forward to. It was God entering into this covenant with his people, the new covenant, the coming of Christ, God and man, joined as one. And in the very context of revealing that was a man and a woman, the two becoming one in the covenant of marriage. Probably the, at least one of the greatest places in the scripture that describes this intimate interrelation between God's relationship or covenant with his people, his church, and that interrelationship and how the two model each other between the covenant of marriage where two become one is in Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 22. I would simply like to read these verses to you. You can follow along if you have your Bible or perhaps meditate on them. But listen now to this interrelationship between Christ and his church and between a man and a woman. The Apostle Paul, as he goes through here, uses interchangeable terms. It's hard to tell at times if he's talking about marriage or talking about Christ and his church because the two are so closely tied together. The Apostle writes, Wives should be subordinate to their husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of his wife, just as Christ is head of the church, he himself the savior of the body. As the church is subordinate to Christ, so wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. How? Even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in splendor, just like a bride on her wedding day, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So also, now back to marriage, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hates his own flesh, but rather nourishes and cherishes it, even as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Where have we heard that before? Oh, that's right. Genesis 2, when we opened our, our, our Bible to the first pages, we find it now right in the very heart of the apostles' teaching about the church in an epistle which soars in its teaching about a church comparing marriage and the Christ covenant with the church. This is a great mystery, but I speak in reference to Christ and the church. I mentioned that one's views of the sacrament affects one's views of the church just as one's views of the church affects one's view of the sacrament. These two are interrelated. And I tried to describe my pilgrimage and my understanding of the sacrament, and as it grew, so did my vision for the Catholic Church grow. Well, after our survey of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, in the very heart of it, the opening of Christ's ministry, it's very obvious that one's view of the church will affect one's view of marriage 
and one's view of marriage will affect one's view of the church. And you might say, you know, of all the doctrinal differences between Protestants and Catholics, for me, one of the most fundamental doctrines is taught in Scripture was not perhaps some of the debates that you would normally associate in Protestant-Catholic dialogue or struggles or doctrinal differences. For me, it really centered in a very major way over the biblical teaching of marriage and how it related to the church. And it started with marriage. It ended with the church. I didn't quite realize what was happening in the process. So again, I'm going to be relating my doctrinal changes through the process of my life. About 1985 to 1987, I came upon some very major changes in my views of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, specifically the issues surrounding divorce and remarriage. You can't be in the pastorate in America and not have to face this on a regular basis, these issues, and how you relate to the rightness or wrongness of certain types of divorce and remarriage relates to your whole view of marriage itself. The reformers denied that marriage was a sacrament, and as a result, they therefore permitted divorce and remarriage in certain instances. This is where it started. Let me just say that again, because you may not be aware. These are major changes, and even though you're a Catholic, you are living in a land that has been greatly influenced by the Protestant views of marriage. The reformers denied that marriage was a sacrament. And along with that denial, because with that changing view of marriage, came the idea that marriage was not something indissoluble. It was not something that God made the two one of baptized Christians, two one until death, that uh, it could be dissolved under certain limited circumstances. It was the break in the dam that has later exploded in our culture. In, in effect, for the reformers, marriage became a breakable civil contract. Now, I don't know if what I'm saying this morning, I don't, it may be too early, is ringing any bells. The difference between a contract and a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. It is not just simply a contract a living arrangement where two people decide to live together under a roof and the laws of which are regulated by the civil government. Marriage is something that was created by God, ordained by God, and done by God. This is God's grace bringing two and making them one. Making them one. Just as God becomes one with us. This is a profound mystery. And in marriage... It's not just two deciding to stay next to each other. It doesn't say the two will be with each other. It says that the two shall become one. And that's the way they are. That's their objective reality until death. But with the reformers' change of viewing marriage not as a sacrament, it came to be viewed as a civil contract that under limited circumstances, could be ended and another marriage engaged in. I read and continue to read the Bible a lot. Of course, now I'm a Catholic. I have a few extra books of the Bible to read, but I try to read the Bible every year. Um, 
It took me a little longer this year. I don't blame it on the extra books, but uh, I try to go to the scriptures and just have the broadest ex- uh, exposure to the scripture on a regular basis. Certain scriptures would bug me every year with growing frequency, particularly some of the minor prophets. You see, the prophets would come to Israel, the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, and they would speak to their departure from God in terms of marital infidelity. They would use marriage as a picture. They would say for the apostasy of Israel, they would say you have become an adulterous generation. The spirit of whoredom or the spirit of harlotry has affected you. And their departure from God was, was pictured as a departure from a faithful spouse. I delved into uh, New Testament studies, did Greek word studies, uh, surrounding the passages particularly in the New Testament, but all of the scripture regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. may be interested to know that it was through the Presbyterian Church, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which had such an impact on the religious climate in early America that permitted divorce in certain limited circumstances, that teaching brought to America has basically spread through the evangelical church. And the consensus, the almost universal Protestant consensus, you find that marriage, in fact, is dissoluble through Protestant teaching, came from the Presbyterian Church. Its teaching was highly regarded in the founding uh, era of this country, and it spread. I read a book, and I recommend, it's a little on the, not a little, it's quite a bit on the technical level, but it's entitled Jesus and Divorce, The Problem with the Evangelical Consensus. It's published by Zondervan Press. Its authors are William Heth and Gordon Wenham. And it's summarized in that book many of the arguments that are put forward by generally Presbyterian writers defending the confession of faith, uh, Westminster Confession's position on the permissible divorce in limited circumstances. One of the interesting things in that book that I saw that these men were right. And beyond that, although these two men were highly criticized by their fellow evangelicals, the book opens, guess with what? The church fathers. Now, at an earlier point in my Christian pilgrimage, I say, well, you know, forget that. But at this point in my life, I had learned that these men deserved my respect. Remember what I said about the commandment to honor your father and mother? That even applies to the church fathers. doesn't mean that you have to obey everything that they say, but you need to listen to everything they say and heed it and weigh it. And these men presented the case that with one solitary exception, there was a universal consensus in the early centuries of the church regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's the Catholic position. That's why the Catholic Church still holds it. And guess where they got it from? Jesus and the apostles. And this stood against the universal consensus in the Protestant church. I felt very alone, and I'm going to describe a couple times how alone I felt during this pilgrimage. I said, I really question my thinking. You know, if I have this insight, how come other people don't? Because I respect these other people. They're godly people. How come they're missing this? And yet I read some of the finest Greek scholars, uh, the Germans, and 
they'd say, well, you know, it's very clear what the, Jesus is saying in the Greek here. No divorce. And if there's divorce, there's no remarriage afterwards. If it was a lawful marriage. And, but they're saying something to the effect, well, you know, they're neo-Orthodox and the Bible isn't the word of God anyhow, so they don't, that doesn't bother them a whole lot what Jesus said or didn't say. But they're very clear what the Greek said. To top that off, most people get confused in the maze of technical discussions regarding the Greek and the exception clauses that are in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 19, where Jesus basically, and Mark and Luke, has a clear statement, no divorce and remarriage, or else that's adultery. He says in Matthew twice in those two passages, chapter 5 and chapter 19, except for, in the Greek, porneia, Sometimes it's interpreted or translated as fornication or adultery. Uh, in the New American Bible, it's translated unlawful marriage, and that's an interpretive translation, but I believe it's close to being accurate. It's interesting that you, know, you read, and this stuff is written by Presbyterian scholars, good men, but it's, you, know, you get all confused reading it. But here's a simple one for you, because I, I realize most of you don't know Greek, and you're not going to go read all these Greek discussions, but listen to this. In the early church, there were two types, general types of church fathers, Latin-speaking and Greek-speaking, East and West. And guess what? The Greek-speaking church fathers didn't have to go to seminary and study day and night and weekends their Greek. I mean, they knew it. That was their mother tongue. You know how you talk in a foreign language is? You always miss the nuances, don't you? But if it's your mother tongue, you, it just, you know it. There wasn't any question amongst the Greek fathers either what Jesus was saying in the Greek New Testament. My views also changed from pastoral counseling, just living with people as a pastor. Although just incredible pains and, and very often people, you know, in a marriage, some people have just been so unjustly dumped on and cheated on and, and, uh, and used and abused, yet, you know, the solution for happiness is looked for outside of the boundaries of God's Word. The late Dr. Francis Schaeffer, his wife Edith, has written a book on the Ten Commandments. And the title of that book, to me, is so wisely chosen. It's entitled Lifelines. If you can imagine lifelines on a ship, you know, God's commandments and as preserved in a church are looked as something harsh and hard and are there to keep us from fulfillment and happiness in life. No, there are lifelines. They're there to preserve our life. They're there to preserve our marriages. They're there to preserve our families. They're there to keep us from harm. Our Creator knows us. He made us. He knows how we function. He knows how we live in covenant with one another. He lives in covenant with us. Those are His lifelines. And you know the statistics, but you know I would talk with people. And I just think of an instance this morning. There is a divorce in a grandparent, and now a granddaughter wanted to marry a man who was unlawfully divorced. I didn't have any church backing to say no, but I just tried to urge the family not to give blessing to this marriage. To just don't do it. The grandmother came in and talked to me. I wasn't looking forward to that. But we had a, a good talk 
And I looked right in her eyes and I said, I have never met a divorced person who ever got the other person out of their heart. She looked right at me and said, you're right. God makes the two one. He joins us in body and soul in the covenant of marriage. Not two living together. He makes the two one. And you can go and, and leave your spouse and enter into a relationship with another person. But there's that internal conflict. And it was so evident to me. And yet I felt in a way helpless to do anything about it in the context of where I was. I had a crisis in my pastorate. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 are listed the requirements for a bishop or in a Presbyterian church for an elder of the church. And one of the, the, the very top, towards the top of that list, it mentions must be the husband of one wife or sometimes translated married but once. And I was faced with the situation of men nominated for church office, deacon and elder, who had been uh, divorced and remarried in the widest variety of settings, some before their conversion, some after, and um, I couldn't do it. It was my job as pastor to lay hands on these men at their ordination. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 22, that same epistle of Paul says, don't lay hands suddenly on any man. Do not share or partake in another's sin. I couldn't do it. This created a very major internal crisis amongst the leadership and the prospective nominees of the church. We opened our Bibles. We got copies of Heth and Wenham, Jesus and Divorce. We went through it, and I said, I recognize that this is my problem, that the church has standards, and I just have these convictions, and in a Presbyterian church, you're never asked to, uh, to act against your conscience, and, and they respected that, and I knew that it would perhaps cost me uh, my pastorate. And surprisingly, the leaders of my church agreed with me. This is Steve Wood, and you've been listening to Faith and Family episode 36 and part one of my very first talk on Catholic marriage. You've heard how my study in the Greek New Testament and in the early church fathers led me to the unmistakable conclusion that a valid Christian marriage was indissoluble. Next week, you'll hear how this discovery led to an extreme crisis in my Protestant pastorate and how St. John Paul II rescued me from this crisis. Be sure to join us next week. Until next time, this is Steve Wood with Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at familylifecenter.net. To order a CD copy of today's broadcast, order online at www.familylifecenter.net.